You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Most of us have a passion that we want to share with others, something that draws us out of our shell and can get us so invested that meals get missed, laundry gets ignored, and dishes can really pile up. For King James IV of Scotland, that passion was language. James IV was a true Renaissance man in every sense. This term, meant as an homage to Leonardo da Vinci, the original Renaissance man, refers to someone who is well-studied, well-rounded, and skilled in many areas either through natural talent or hard work. During the period that James IV lived in the late 13th and early 14th centuries, the Renaissance was just kicking off, and the ideas coming out of it were spreading far and wide. Suddenly, it wasn't enough for a learned person to master languages and histories. They should also be intellectual, a philosopher willing to debate different ideas, an artist, a scholar, maybe even an inventor of some sort. The ideal Renaissance man was all of that and more. James IV was very young when he came to the throne. At just 15, he still should have been in the schoolroom instead of succeeding his father to the throne. His courtiers were still jockeying for position, and as a boy with relatively little power and no parents to support him, He couldn't rule in his own right until around 1495. The young king was very good-looking, with an interest in physical activities like hunting, falconry, and jousting. However, James' good looks and athletic skills weren't the only qualities to recommend him. He was also very intelligent and well-educated. He took an interest in different scientific pursuits, including chemistry, alchemy, and dentistry, practicing all of them himself. While the idea of the king as a practicing dentist makes me nervous, he was dedicated to the advancement of medicine, founding the first department of medicine in a university in the British Isles in 1495. He was a great patron of the arts as well, supporting everything from music to poetry, and he threw lavish parties and pageants. Unfortunately, all the spectacles and science in the world didn't make James IV any better liked. He was deeply unpopular with the nobility, and his predilection for siring illegitimate children was causing problems. Still, the dislike wasn't enough to oust him from his throne, or from his experiments. Now, like I said, James was fascinated by different languages. He spoke eight of them himself. He was the last Scottish monarch to speak Scots Gaelic alongside English, but his repertoire also included Latin, French, German, Italian, Flemish, and Spanish. This obsession led James IV to design a bizarre experiment in 1493. The king was particularly interested in what came before modern language, not ancient hieroglyphs or anything taught by parents, but the spoken word with no interference. 
James reasoned that whatever language came about spontaneously to someone who had never heard spoken language before must have been given that by God. So James IV ordered two newborn children to be sent to live on the remote island of Inchkeith, where they would be raised by a woman who was deaf and mute. He reasoned that with no adult there to teach them language, they would grow up only speaking the first language that God gifted to mankind. This experiment sounds strange and even cruel to us today. And to be clear, it very much is. Also, he wasn't the first or the last to try this. One of James's possible inspirations was Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, who lived in the 1200s. And another may have been a more ancient source. You see, in the 7th century BCE, an Egyptian pharaoh sent two infants to live with a shepherd in an extremely isolated part of Egypt and told the man the children could never be spoken to. According to Herodotus, the children babbled often, but one of the words was recognizable, the Phrygian word for bread. The pharaoh then concluded that Phrygia was mankind's oldest civilization. He was wrong about that, but the story of the experiment remained. James IV had no qualms about essentially shipping a woman and two children off to a deserted island with no way to send for help. He only provided the bare minimum of material necessities, including food, clothing, and kindling. And then he waited. So, what happened to the children? Well, that's where the story tends to get a little fuzzy. Some theorize that the children got sick and died before they could be recovered from the island. Others have proposed that they rejoined society and may have become minor celebrities. Still others claim that they were brought back and presented to the king where, weirdest of all, they spoke perfect Hebrew. We'll never know for sure, largely because there aren't any contemporary records of the experiment taking place. And maybe it never did. But even if it did happen, it's doubtful that James got the answers that he wanted. Sir Walter Scott summed it up best when he said the children likely left the island sounding more like the goats and sheep that called it home. But regardless of all that, it's thrilling to speculate what people sounded like in a time before our own. Language is ever-changing, and maybe someday distant descendants of ours will want to know what we sounded like. And hey, maybe our cabinet of curiosities will still be around to show them. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is sponsored by Intuit. Here's a story for you. Once upon a time, a young woman was haunted by the ghosts of bad financial decisions, with credit card debt and an empty savings account looming over her every day. But when she tried to ignore these ghosts, they only grew bigger and scarier. And these ghosts of her bad financial decisions were stopping her from living her best life. So she decided to face them head on and take control of her finances with help from Intuit. 
Intuit helps you face your financial fears with confidence through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. For those of us who study history, there seems to be nothing new under the sun. As Mark Twain put it, it's actually impossible to have a new idea, but that it can be beautiful for old notions to be remade into something new. We might see that in the stories we tell over and over from books and plays to movies. The emotions and delight carry through to new generations while preserving the original intent. My Fair Lady has gone through many iterations, starting as a Greek myth before becoming a stage play in 1913, then a Broadway musical in 1956, and finally the 1964 movie that we all grew up with. For anyone not as musical crazy as some members of my research team, I'll give you a quick recap. Eliza Doolittle is a cockney flower seller in Edwardian London when she comes to the attention of phonetic scholar Dr. Henry Higgins. Egomaniac Higgins boasts that he can reform her accent and manners so well she could pass as a duchess at a high society ball. The story goes on to follow their experiments, highs and lows, and each learns something from the other along the way. Supported by a colorful cast of characters, it's always a delight to watch albeit a little dated now. The Broadway show was incredibly popular, starring a young Julie Andrews as Eliza and industry giant Rex Harrison as Higgins. Their chemistry, along with Andrews' spectacular voice, made the show a hit and distant bodies in Hollywood began to talk. Yes, My Fair Lady would make the perfect movie musical, so Jack Warner of Warner Brothers snapped up the rights. As production got off the ground, many expected Andrews and Harrison to reprise their roles. They had made the stage show a success, after all. Audiences were delighted to learn that Harrison would once again be bringing his unique charms to the priggish professor, but were stunned to hear that Andrews had been snubbed. Instead of keeping Julie Andrews, who had little screen experience or draw outside of theater crowds, Jack Warner decided the movie needed a bigger name. At that time, no one was bigger than Audrey Hepburn, and she was delighted to take the part. She had no singing experience, mind you, but she hired a vocal coach and worked hard to step into the role of Eliza. Although she was disappointed at the loss, Andrews herself was hardly idle. At the time, she was performing in Camelot as Queen Guinevere alongside Richard Burton. She stood out in the cast, so much so that she had a special visitor backstage one night. Walt Disney was in the crowd and loved her performance so much that he offered her a role in an upcoming project right there on the spot. Andrews smiled and demurred, and finally admitted that she wouldn't be able to be in his movie because, well, she was pregnant. Disney was not about to lose a budding star, and firmly told her that they would wait. And they did. In 1962, Andrews gave birth to a daughter, and in 1963, began her work as a no-nonsense nanny, Mary Poppins herself. Both Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady premiered in theaters in late 1964, and both were smash successes. It was a golden moment for Andrews, but was likely at least a little bittersweet for Hepburn. 
You see, Jack Warner wasn't taking any chances with a commercial success. He had promised Hepburn that she could sing the parts, but without anyone realizing it, they had brought in one of Hollywood's worst-kept secrets, a woman named Marnie Nixon. Nixon was what you called a ghost singer. You can hear her voice in classics like West Side Story when she sang Maria's parts, or other roles like Grandmother Fa in Disney's Mulan. Nixon sang a majority of Eliza Doolittle's numbers, albeit uncredited, which reduced Hepburn to a largely speaking role, even after she had tried so hard. We don't know Hepburn's reactions, but she was likely devastated. I've heard the original cuts when Hepburn sings, and honestly, while she's no Julie Andrews, she might have made a lovely Eliza if left alone. Regardless, award season was going to be contentious between the two movies, especially the Golden Globes, which pitted Hepburn and Andrews against each other for Best Actress. It could have devolved into a squabble that would have given Betty Davis and Joan Crawford a run for their money, but of course, neither Hepburn nor Andrews begrudged each other the success. In the end, Julie Andrews won the award for her performance as Mary Poppins and rose to make the expected acceptance speech. After she thanked everyone who had helped her get where she was that night, she took a deep breath and closed by saying these words. My thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all of this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. It was a small little dig that caused the place to erupt, and the camera caught Warner laughing along with the rest of the crowd. It's a snub that's been mostly forgotten, but as we know, Andrew's career was just beginning to blossom. Over the years, Julie Andrews has taught so many kids, including myself, so many important life lessons, including, as it turns out, how to throw shade with a smile. It's true, a spoonful of sugar can make even the bitterest sentiment go down in the most delightful way. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.